0: welcome to street smart success this is roger becker your host many growing markets in the u.s. still have more rental demand than supply tucson in particular has more population growth than housing which has resulted in market-wide vacancy of less than two percent this is a recipe for increasing rents and successful multifamily investment gary lipsky president and ceo of break-of-day capital has done several lucrative deals in Tucson and is continuing to enhance his presence there. So today we have with us a highly accomplished and also um, a very interesting guy with a pretty um, varied background, a very, very successful entrepreneur. Uh, in addition to that, he's a best-selling author. He's a podcast host. Uh, he has done an awful lot in the multifamily space in a short period of time. So he's clearly a very quick study. He is the president and CEO of Break of Day Capital. He is Gary Lipsky. Gary, welcome to Street Smart Success. Uh, thanks for having me, Roger. Yep, you got it. And so we, we chit-chatted a little bit about uh, where you're at now. You're down there uh, in the uh, sunny part of California. and uh, But where do you hail from? There aren't very many native Californians. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I was born in Queens and
1: so, unfortunately, I was cursed by having my sports team be the New York Mets, Jets, and Knicks. And then I grew up in North Jersey.
0: I see. Well, you say that, but you're not. So that, you know, kind of somewhat dates you. I mean, if you're my age, you know, the the, the 69 Mets were amazing.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I went to all four World Series games in 86 when I was in high school, um, which was... Uh, which was amazing. But
0: I mean, we're talking, you know, almost 40 years ago. I know. Well, I'm an old man. So that stuff in my mind is fresh. I watched a uh, ESPN 30 for 30 special with my son as a way to bond. Uh, actually, last summer about it was about Daryl Strawberry and and Doc Gooden. Uh, very, very interesting documentary. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, uh, those guys had their demons, but no, uh, very fascinating. They were huge, uh, and so you—how long were you in Queens? Only till
1: I was about three and a half years old, and then uh, you know, parents bought their forever house in thirty miles west of Manhattan, and grew up being outside all day long, playing sports and starting entrepreneurial ventures. Back then. Yeah. Well, even, you know, as a, as a kid, you know, we would, you know, shovel driveways during the winter. Um, we learned how to auto detail cars during the summer, um, to make some, some money. And, um, that was, that was the start.
0: <laughs> you were a hustler. That's impressive, man. You have the gene it's, it's within you.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, when I go to my parents' house, you know, for the holidays and stuff, I still have like books entrepreneurial books, like, and, you know, where my old room was, you know, like Wendy's Way. And, um, there was like a Jack Welch book and a few other books of, you know, when I, when I was young and, you know, just reading up on that stuff.
0: So you were reading that stuff, like, is a, is a kid, like a teenager? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Unbelievable, man. At that age oh my God, I mean, I, I didn't have a, the remotest clue on the planet compared to what you're describing. So yeah, so you were like dyed in the wool just out of the, out of the gate. And then where did you proceed to, uh, to college and w- what did you do in college and all that good stuff?
1: Yeah, I went to Boston University. I got a master's in business administration. And then I also, I think I was like one class short of, of uh, a film minor. And coincidentally, I I used you know, both of those degrees, although, you know, what what you learn in college doesn't it's really the relationships and, and, and ability to execute. And but, you know, I I was I'm the rare person that utilized both of those those, you know, that focus, you know.
0: Okay, so if you got an MBA, usually people, you know, they, what they do is they have their four year undergrad and then they go out and work for a couple few three, four maybe even five years and get an MBA. Did you not do that? Did you go straight through?
1: I couldn't wait to just work. You know, school is a lot of memorizing and whatnot. That I mean, I did pretty good, but I wasn't I, I wanted to get in the workforce. And uh during during college one summer, we started a restaurant delivery service in New York, you know, kinda like a DoorDash that, you know, or postmates. And there was a moment where I almost um was gonna postpone going back to college or why not? Because we were doing really well. But we ended up sending up some other people to, to run it and while we were in college. And they, they, ran, they quickly ran it into the ground. Um, and so that, that was that.
0: <laughs> okay. okay. You utilized both of those majors, even though you were a credit short on the film side. So what does that mean?
1: Yeah. So I, in my 20s, I co-produced three low-budget independent movies. And one of them I actually wrote and directed uh, with a buddy of mine uh, as well. And I had I had done some work on some films as a, as a PA, a production assistant. And I absolutely hated that because it was standing around doing a lot of nothing. And it, that just drives me crazy. My my DNA is I have to be like a decision maker, be part of, part of the process. And that's why I've really always been an entrepreneur, never really worked for anyone else. But yeah, I, I I did film in 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 my twenties.
0: Yeah, being like a PA and on, on a film set, people think it's glamorous, but like watching people act, it's a lot more setting up and waiting around, and, and you know, hundreds of takes, and it's like watching paint dry. And if you're like a type A personality, which you are, you're you're ready to kill yourself. Yeah,
1: yeah, it was mind numbing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, in my other life, I've directed a lot of you want to talk about low budget TV commercials, like lower than low budget. And uh, yeah, I just want to. when I finally started building my business and hiring people, I'm like, I never want to do that like ever again that and talking to clients uh were were the two things i I didn't excel at but okay so dude that's very interesting and so you know you have absolutely fulfilled the promise i made at the top that you are an interesting guy man because not many people that have done that uh and then you like co-produced wow so what were the content of these films and i and i assume these were above board we're not we're not talking porno here right
1: <laughs> no, no. Um, one film was a guy from my high school. I think the budget was like seventy five thousand dollars, and uh, one of the high school teachers wrote it, and he he asked me to co produce it. And um, you know, we filmed it at, at the high school that we went to, uh, in different uh, locales around the area. So it was a little bit of a thriller, and then I I worked on a I wrote. A film. It's funny. So my a buddy of mine was doing real estate. He, he's actually my first real estate mentor. He was converting uh, a hotel in Palm Springs and uh, to to um, like a timeshare. And I went and and visited with him. And I said, this would be a really cool place to shoot a shoot. You know, like a, a film or something. And he's like, yeah, you could shoot here. And so I went back told my friend and and we we drove out literally the next day uh, just got a feel for the area and wrote a 10-minute script based on that location, like an action piece that we pre-sold to Brazil and Germany and some other countries. And from that money, we were able to raise money to, to do the rest of the film. And we took that kind of short and plugged it into uh, that, that piece. Um, so <laughs> it was... Little did I know that was my first entry into 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 real estate um, at that uh,
0: at that moment, you know. Interesting stuff. Well, yeah. what did you do dovetailing out of that? Yeah, so I was having a, a, a child at
1: the time, and and it didn't. The film work is just as nights and travel and this and that, and it was it was it was crazy, and there was a lot of people that stole money along the way, distributors and whatnot, and so. I was writing a script with a buddy of mine and he taught music education at a school and uh, he introduced me to a school and they said I needed a lifeguard. I said, well, coincidentally enough, I have a lifeguard for you. Um, so I, I went on Craigslist, hired a lifeguard and started a business working with schools. And during high school, I, I taught some sports programs at, at the Y. I eventually grew that into um, over 700 employees and 700 independent contractors. And we were serving 9,000 youth daily throughout Southern California, running uh, after-school programs, outdoor ed, and leadership development
0: for mostly at-risk youth. Dude, that's amazing. So I get who the students were. What were you providing the schools exactly? I'm a little fuzzy.
1: Yeah, so we started with sports programs. And then it grew to one uh, school's like, well, can you run after school programs? And we said, yes. And most of that was funded through grants. So, you know, we provided tutoring and sports and music and dance and all types of, of, of programs for kids, you know, working with, you know, 80 to 150 daily. We, um, we were doing a lot of adventure stuff. So we had portable rock walls we'd bring to schools. We'd take kids off-site to go rock climbing and camping and mountain biking. And we teach life skills through these outdoor adventures. We teach um, leadership skills. We also, at the high school level, we had anti-smoking campaigns that we put on and the kids would lead it versus the adults. So it'd be a lot more powerful. And Anti-violence campaigns, and um, this was a lot, you know. Again, through grant money, and it was just a very, very powerful program um, that we developed in coordination with uh, with the LA Unified School District. Um, yeah, very, very proud of that, and and built up a really good team. and And I had been investing in real estate, so I was, you know, looking for my next chapter in in life and. I sold that company at the end of 2016, and got into real estate full time. Um, I started investing in other people's deals and just educating myself, um, attending tons of meetups and 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 different programs, and and that was really my my launch. Before that, I actually had. when I had bought my own house, I never looked at it as a forever house like my parents. And so I looked at it as, you know, I had no money down. I had debt. We converted the garage into an office so I was able to collect some rent money. We opened up the kitchen and then I bought another house and turned that into a rental. And so I was getting my feet wet wet there. And I knew I I loved real estate because of that creative side that's in me and that business side
0: just to cap the business serving schools, um, yeah. which sounds ingenious. So basically you were providing these after-school programs, you know, the, you know, these different, you know, non-smoking different campaigns, because these schools didn't have the infrastructure to do that because schools are basically, here's a principal, vice principal, some guidance counselors, and some teachers. They, they don't have the infrastructure to do it. And then there's grant money and voila, next thing you know, you've got the government basically paying you and you're filling a need that nobody else can do. Is, is that essentially what it was? Absolutely, absolutely. There's a, a lot more money we,
1: we got in there just as like a wave of money was coming in to after school programs. The Schwarzenegger actually kind of led that and California was uh, one of the leaders with after after school money and, and, and this grand money. And quickly we became a, a force in that industry because of our ability to try different programs and come up with creative solutions to the issues out there. And it was, it was really cool, the, the, uh, the impact we had on these youths. Um, and and it's the, the programs are still going on. It's, it's kind of evolved a little bit over time, but uh, incredibly impactful.
0: Well, one of the more annoying cliches I've heard over time is, you know, you can do well by doing good. It's a cheesy cliche, but in in your case, it sounds like you really, really, actually, really did that. So in other words, it sounds like you made some money, man, but it sounds like, wow, you changed a lot of people's lives. So good for you. Damn. Well, roughly what kind of revenues were there, you know, towards the end or at its zenith?
1: Yeah. Yeah. We, we grew it to uh, a little over 12 million, I believe uh, a year. We, you know, we were a for-profit in a nonprofit world. So there was, there was a a little bit of a ceiling that we had in, in, in our work and uh, you know, times were, were starting to change. I could see the, the, Things starting to change, and you know, we we did a lot of work with LAO and there was there was a, eventually get, we were getting some pushback. So I knew I knew things were were, were changing, and so uh, it, it, it was really time for my next uh, venture to uh, to see where I can really you know blow it out to. And and when when you have such a big organization, you know, almost you know fourteen hundred people working for you, it it became hard to, to really impact the change that I wanted to. And uh, yeah, so so it was, like I said, I built up a really good team. It was time for my next uh, adventure.
0: I got it. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk, and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, Vice President, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467-5909 you'll be glad you did. So real estate wise, you're talking a transition full-time in 2016. And I guess what what was the bridge, for lack of a better term, into multifamily? Like what was your first big takedown or what was the the path to that, et cetera?
1: Yeah, so there's so many ways to make money in real estate. And it it becomes a little overwhelming in the beginning. So you know, I was kind of getting my feet wet to all the different, you know, asset classes and, and, and whatnot. And, and then, I, you know, I, I discovered multifamily and that seemed like a really good fit for me because each property is running a business. You know, you have to do your due diligence, um, analyze a deal, come up with a business plan and execute on that and, and manage people and, and bring out the best of, uh, of them. And so it seemed like a really good fit for me. I started investing in in some other people's deals with my retirement money. And then it took a while, but eventually we took down our first deal. And our very first deal was a 42 unit in Tucson for $1.65 million.
0: Nice. My goodness gracious. Wow. Okay. When was that?
1: So that was um, May 2019. So I it, it took a little while to get our first deal. I had been looking at some smaller deals uh, myself, thinking that I had to like build a resume first before I can go to a bigger property, and you know learn through other different groups that you could you know real real estate is a team sport, and started you know. Pooling resources with with another person, you know, we would drive out to to Phoenix and Tucson, you know, four o'clock in the morning, and come back, you know, at midnight, um, just you know, chasing properties um, and, and and doing the reps. You know, you you got to get to that those ten thousand hours. So, just underwriting a ton of properties, touring it, and coming in, you know, second, third, you know, on a lot of deals, and 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 this deal was kind of kind of launched us. Um, you know, it doesn't doesn't matter where you start as long as you start. You know,
0: did you um, so prior to that? You said you'd looked at maybe doing some smaller deals on your own because you kind of wanted to get your feet wet. Uh, did you end up doing that or no?
1: No, no I um, I had a twelve unit under contract and there was a lot of work that needed to be done and I wanted to get a discount from the seller. And he, you know, they didn't want to. And that's also when the light bulb went off. Like I need to do bigger deals so I have more margin for error. Because you know? if there was you know, on a, on a smaller deal, if there was you know, a $50,000 or $100,000 work that needed to be done, that's hard. But on a bigger deal, you have just a lot more margin for these types of things. So never, never did a, a smaller deal um, and just went into, into that 42 unit.
0: What, uh, this is somewhat of a nonlinear question, but I wanted to ask it in, in, it's a very easy, easy one. What does break of day mean?
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny. I get asked that a lot. So it it means a, a bunch of different things to me. One was, you know, I was, I was selling that previous business and getting into something new, it also means, you know, I'm, I'm an early riser, I get to work, you know, early and just looking at, towards a, a bright future, you know? And so that, that was my thinking behind that name.
0: Got it. I was just I had to ask, I was just curious because it is a different kind of name. And so the, the 42 unit deal in, in Tucson in 19, who is the we in the, in the we there?
1: Yeah. Um, I partnered with, uh, Kyle Mitchell. He found the deal and, uh, Stephen Louie, and we went on to do about, uh, one, two, four, five deals together, I believe.
0: Got it. And then, uh, are they, so you guys did four deals together and are they, uh, I actually interviewed, Kyle, a year and a half-ish ago, and so I don't really remember too much of it, which is neither here nor there, but uh, w- are you still doing deals with those guys or did, or did they break off and you break off or what's- Yeah, that?
1: we we split off um, about a, uh, a year ago. Kyle and I wrote a, an Amazon bestselling book on asset management, but we had uh, overlapping skill sets, you know, what got us from point A to point B would necessarily get us from point B to point C. And I'm definitely a better operator because of that relationship. But, um, you know, we just, you know, decided to to, to do our own deals going forward. And, uh, but we, you know, we still, hey, we were on a panel uh, this past weekend on asset management and uh, we, we have a few deals still together. And, um, you know, it's all good, but sometimes, you know, things you know, happen
0: for the best for, for both of us, you know? Got it. Uh, if I'm pressing too much, just let me know and we'll move on. Okay. Cause yeah, no I, I asked the, the master of the inappropriate question. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so my question is you, you said, what got you from A to B wouldn't necessarily get you from B to C. The question is like, what are details around that? And again, if I'm pressing too much, we can move on.
1: Yeah. I would just say, you know, um, your your job responsibilities. If you have overlapping skill sets, you know, and and we had talked about this from the beginning and struggled a little bit with that. So if you're going to partner with someone, obviously having uh, different skill sets are are important. And so that that would be my advice to uh, to a young you know syndicator. Having having different skill sets is going to get you further over the over the long haul. You know.
0: It makes intuitive sense and uh, just at 50,000 feet, I, and I'm not suggesting this is what happened, but I would just say that overlapping skill sets as opposed to completely separate or, or two people are completely siloed and one doesn't even know about the other person's silo, but just has a respect that, hey, I don't do X, I don't do the asset management because I really do Y over here, less room for friction, you know, whereas if you both do the same kind of things, I could see where you could really step on one another's toes. And I'm not saying that that's what happened, but I'm just saying that for just for partnerships, I think to be that they're most functional. Yeah, absolutely.
1: You want to have someone that covers your weak spots and vice versa, you know, but, um, I am definitely, uh, better from that, uh, that partnership and, and hopefully he can say the same thing.
0: I Would imagine, yeah. I mean, I think it's a smart way to look at it, and so, so Gary, you're you've been doing stuff, so break of Kappa break of day was born at what point, and I guess you know, bring us up to to current,
1: yeah. So it was uh, it was formed at the end of 2016, and so, um, but it, you know, yeah, it's been in existence so, uh, almost six years now, and you know, from that one point five $1.6.5 million point five million dollar deal, our next deal we did was a little over $15 million in Phoenix. So we jumped up um, because of that mindset of partnering with others. And we got that deal because uh, Stephen uh, actually got the deal from the broker because he had done a deal with them and he had a full-time job. He couldn't underwrite it. And we knew it was coming to market the very next day. So we or in two days, and we underwrote it that day and drove out to Phoenix uh, the next morning to be the first to, to see the deal and, and quickly put in uh, an offer because we liked it, and met our criteria. Uh, that, that was our, our second deal
0: let me ask a question in another way because i mistook something and so probably created a little bit of confusion for anybody listening and probably for you i i kind of thought break of day was then yours after kyle but apparently you guys were together on that my mistake my bad so i guess i'll ask the question in another way is is since going off strictly on your own i guess what has been kind of what have you been doing then since then
1: Okay. And, and I'll clarify. So Break of Day was my company. And so we did deals separately. And then we merged into one company. And I had Break, break of Day owned 50% and, and his company owned 50%. And then we just split apart. So I always had that company. but But since then, we closed on a small off-market property at the end of 2021. Which is doing phenomenal. It was a C class and a B class neighborhood. So we're getting like four hundred dollar rent bumps. We closed a couple months after that. How, how many we, units was that? Seventy two units. Okay, got which it. Which is on the on the smaller side for us, but right. um, it, again, it was a pure off market deal and and just a ton of value on that property. Um, so we'll do we'll do very well. And then we closed on a twenty six million dollar deal, hundred and seventy six units. In March or April, I believe, we got that deal. I think the day that we closed ICON and then we'll close another deal, a $59 million deal. It's 248 units in Tucson. We'll be closing in the next uh, two weeks. And then we're working on, a, on, on another deal as well. We just had the webinar the other night.
0: Uh, that is absolutely fantastic. And so when you say we in that context, uh, what does that mean? Yeah, I
1: get my team. I have three full-time people that work with me now, and then we use some uh, independent contractors as well. So we we built up. I built up my team, and then we'll we'll partner with people on different deals uh, based on what's needed. Um, you know, you know for you know each each person or each group brings brings something different. But obviously, when you're taking down huge deals, you you need a capital partner too. And so, you know, we'll we'll partner with different people. We've used pref equity before mezzanine financing you know to creative ways to you know get your you know to fill up your capital stack you know
0: got it on, on this one you know which is sizable do you have a uh, you have any institutional money in it or
1: we have a, a mezz so we have a fixed fixed uh loan with mezz to get us basically bridge proceeds and then i have a partner that brought in a, a big chunk of the money for for the for the deal not not institutional they're they, you know they're they're a syndicator as well. they partner with other people that are experts in different markets they they prefer a more diversified portfolio where we are kind of really focused on a couple markets so that we can be experts in those markets
0: so that syndicator is bringing along is aggregated their partner's money to put into this deal yeah, got yeah. it okay in what class is this?
1: This is uh, B B plus. Uh, this is the nicest property that I've bought so far, and uh, just uh, it's nineteen eighty nine. But when you look at it, you'd probably think it was like two thousands. Uh, just a, a, a beautiful property, but there's still some uh, some some good value to be added on this, and um, we're really excited to to finally close this deal.
0: Got it. Well, uh, as they say mazel tov on this one um, that's a, <laughs> yeah. a, you're welcome it's a big deal man it takes you know it takes cojones to do something like that which you obviously have and and i guess given where we're at today you know people have very strong opinions well people always have strong opinions but people have very strong opinions about which asset classes make the most amount of sense and i guess you know given where you know the trajectory of a market is i guess that being the case, what's your sense of like where you want to be playing right now, or what you think makes the most amount of sense in in terms of not not obviously within multifamily, but but CBA? What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, so I'm a value seeker. So this deal that we're closing is 1989, but yet what I also have in under esc- in escrow is a 1964 product, which. I've been looking at it it was sent to me off market about 8 months ago. So, it's it's very unique though because it's single story, it's got a ton of land on it. It's got uh every unit has its own backyard and some have private driveways. So, even though you would consider it a class C, um it feels like a a home. So, that's where I'm I that's my selling point and I feel so even though it's like a C neighborhood, it's it's almost um, you know a B type of product, and and I, I feel uh, this is the same um, seller, excuse me, and, and property management company that I bought another deal with that I made a killing on, or I'm about to make a killing on. So I really like that that combo there. They they push more occupancy than than rent, and um, you know we're going to get tremendous rent bumps on this property.
0: I see how many units. Hundred ninety nine. Got it. So again, it's it's sizable. What you, what will be the price on it? Uh, purchase price is
1: thirty seven million.
0: All right. So you see, so you're, you're you're rock and rolling. And so I'm sure you know you've you've heard everything I've heard times a hundred. But there's a um, a leeriness, if you will, on C property just because of you know functional obsolescence, you know, especially around the plumbing, but not just the plumbing, but all systems. And then I it was just listening to uh, an older podcast. I did. I once in a while I listen to just because they were so good. I'm like, anyway, I go back and listen. But then a concern was, well, you know, then who's the buyer pool for C assets? Even though, like you're saying, it's more B. What are your thoughts around that?
1: Yeah, there's plenty of buyers out there. In, in a perfect world, I'd be you know in the in the in the B class. Um, but sometimes you just can't find the value there. Um, and I can really extract a ton of value from those C-class. So that's really my main focus. Tucson is, uh, for, you know, not, you know, you don't find a ton of A-class. You'll find, that, yeah, some, uh, a decent amount of B, but there's a lot of C, a lot of workforce housing there, a lot of properties that haven't been picked over, which I like, um, versus other cities like Phoenix is just, it's very picked over, You know, pricing is about a hundred thousand more per unit, so there's just there's just a lot of opportunity. But uh, if you're a syndicator listening to this, don't you won't like Tucson. (laughs) You know, stay in Texas or somewhere else. (laughs) That 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 is so. How many people live in in uh, in uh, Tucson? Yeah, MSA is a little over a million, and so it's the second biggest city in Arizona, and definitely drifts off of Phoenix, um, which is which is nice. And it's the the tremendous population growth, tremendous job growth, and is supposed to lead the nation in in rent growth over the next year, and has an incredibly low vacancy and um, and low cost of living as well. So those are factors that I love. That you know take a, take a, a, a mediocre property and make it, you know, good, you know, because of, because of those, those factors, you know?
0: Well, you know what? Interesting. And I mean, you know, even if there were to be new construction, you're just, you're not going to compete with that uh, anyway, because those are going to be a different segment, higher rents, it's going to be a, you know, a different rental, rental, Pool, renter pool, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When you say little vacancy, what is the market uh, at large in, in terms of? Yeah, they they have it pegged at I think Marcus Milchap
1: at uh, like one point nine percent vacancy over the next year, which is which is ridiculous. And and you know I can attest to that when I when I try to walk comps on properties that I'm looking at, rarely do I get into a unit because they just don't have anything to show and. We also have, you know, very, very low vacancy at all of our properties too. So um, yeah, they're just, you know, we're, we're over well over 5 million housing units short throughout the U.S. and, and certainly there's a tremendous shortage in Tucson.
0: I see. Uh, on a property like this, what do you anticipate putting in CapEx per unit?
1: Yeah, we'll put in about 2.4 million. Um, so that is, um, I'll do the math really quickly.
0: That's how many units is so that's
1: a little over twelve twelve thousand per unit. A lot of that actually is going uh, on the exterior, but um, you know, there's some uh, deferred maintenance that needs to be addressed. You know, we have we always like to keep reserves for HVAC and roof and stuff like that. We'll add some amenities, and uh, uh, you yeah, know, we're gonna you know, it, it's gonna look
0: great when by the time we're done. And what do you guys set aside for reserves per unit? Um, through the normal like cash flow, or for reserves, just
1: for um, for like the HVAC and roof and stuff like that?
0: Yes. Yeah. So um, not capex. A- yeah, just ongoing. Oh, we're ongoing. It's it's
1: it's funny. Each lender is a little different. What they want. Uh, this lender will will do two hundred and fifty dollars per unit based on their requirements. We, we wouldn't want to go any lower and we want. we want to make sure we were able to pay everything through CapEx anyway. Just, you always want to have buffers because you never know what's going to happen. But it, coincidentally on the, on the 1989 property, our lender's requiring, uh, I think about $350 per unit, per year in reserve. So significantly higher and for a much newer product.
0: That is very interesting yeah I, I wonder why that is
1: yeah they one of the things they did was they're taking even though it's a five year fixed loan, they're taking a six year projection of in expenses and much higher expenses than what um, I guess the uh, the property condition assessment did on on this this older property. So part, partly is who you get and 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 who's your lender. So you always have to have that buffer in your underwriting because yet you never know uh, until until probably too late that you send it to your investors. So make sure you have plenty plenty of buffer in there.
0: Yeah, for, I mean you don't want to get. I mean, nobody in the on earth wants to be in a position where they don't have enough money to to, to put into the property and get into capital call territory and all that kind of stuff. So I, I understand that. How, how do you deal with the management?
1: So. You know, people ask me, do you want to be a property manager? And uh, I, I, I definitely don't want to have that in-house because like my old company, it was kind of a, a low margin, thankless job. And so um, a lot of the properties that I was going to and I really liked and it was clean and they had great staff, um, I hired that company to manage um, my properties and they've done a really good job. And you know, we we have our weekly calls, we spot check them, we, you know, we go to the properties unannounced, we secret shop and not to catch them, but to, to make sure that they're performing, you know, the way we expect them to. And, and um, you know, we set, you know, very high expectations up from the beginning and, and they have high expectations. So we, you know, we have a really nice partnership.
0: That's fantastic. How, do you know how many uh, units they manage in uh, Tucson?
1: I think... Uh, an older number was about 6,000. I'm not sure where they are now, but, uh, you know, and they just focus on that market. They know it really well. Whenever I'm looking at a new property, I can reach out to them and say, hey, what, you know, what do you think about this property and neighborhood? And they're like, well, we usually, it's like they've worked there at some point, you know, Um, but, uh, you know, they can give me some good feedback and, you know, we'll do our underwriting and then, you know, if we really like it, they'll, they'll do a pro forma and then we'll compare notes and, and um we come up with a come up with a, a business plan that, that works so that we can you know make an offer that makes sense for us and and take it down
0: when you say that Tucson has a lot of employment growing employment uh, what are examples of, of that yeah
1: right right
0: near this new property
1: we're buying they' they're building I think a million square feet of warehouse but there's a uh, there's a lot of healthcare. There's uh, the university, which employs a lot. There's a there's a a, a base there, military base. There's uh, some tech, so it's it's pretty di- pretty diverse. Um, you're not going to see tons of companies moving there like you know Dallas or Phoenix, but there are definitely more and more companies that are that are moving there, which is which is nice to see. You
0: know what it sounds like, and just hearing you describe it, it, it sounds like it's a diamond in the rough. And um, it, it it just seems like just flat out, you just got however many people are moving there. It's it's more than the, 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 the clearly the, the, the demand is far exceeding supply. Pretty much, Just very simply.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I quite honestly, when I first did the demographics, when I was starting out, I wasn't that impressed. Um, but once we we had the first property and we're doing well we you know we b- 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 we got another property and and just got over time got you know very excited about investing there and so this new deal that'll be our seventh deal there and we've we've you know gotten phenomenal returns
0: well it also sounds again to me like you know the the like I said this this new deal is you know he said it's like C class but it's almost like B just because it's uh you know the, some of them have their own driveways and um you know it's got a lot of you know, really good attributes. It sounds to me like, you know, the lower demographics of that market and inevitably, I'm sure there's some people with a ton of money, wherever you have a million people, you know, you got wealthy people, but it sounds like there's a huge workforce population that pretty much this is the kind of housing that they expect. And so what you're buying is completely congruent with what the the rental pool is. And so you're it makes a lot of sense. If I'm reading between the lines. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So anyway, uh, what would you say are the key lessons you've learned so far? Well,
1: um, never stop learning. And and that's a a lesson I've learned in life. I mean, because the industry is constantly evolving and and so you never know where you're going to get a new idea from. It could be from someone just starting out. It could be someone, you know, like uh, guys that have been doing it for, for many years. You know, obviously real estate is a team sport. You never know where your next partner is going to, you know, potential partner is going to come from. So just, you know, stay agile, keep an open mind
0: and, you know, network like crazy. What would you say is, uh, here's one that people are always like, huh, they don't know how to answer. And I stole this question from another podcast because I thought it was so good. What is something people don't know about you?
1: I don't know. Uh, I definitely love being outside, whether it's uh, hiking. Or I play beach volleyball a couple of days a week. I love to be active. Um, if, if I sit behind the computer too long, I get incredibly antsy.
0: Dude, you play volleyball. That is very cool. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I
1: never played it until I moved down here to Manhattan Beach and everyone, everyone does it. And it's like, oh, you can work out on the beach and you know, jump in the water when you're done, if you want, I'm like this, I want to learn how to play this game, you know?
0: Well, and it's, um, it's like, it's, it's an exciting thing to actually even just watch, but it's a, it's more physical than meets the eye. Let's just put it that way. And, uh, you know, you gotta be fast and you're moving a lot. You're diving. It's a, it's a pretty cool sport. Let's just put it that way.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm addicted. i you know, I do have to travel to conferences and um, um, and whatnot, or you know, see my property. So I always try to work around it. Or I, I might get in at two o'clock in the morning, you know, from a flight, and and I'm still playing at eight thirty in the morning because I don't, you know, I, I'm I'm pretty uh, religious about uh, about my, uh, you know, that's that's my time, you know.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, wow. Okay, man. You're look. You're the first podcast. Uh, guest I've ever had that plays beach volleyball. Uh, Gary, how would somebody contact you, learn more about you, um, et cetera? Yeah, the best
1: way is to go to our website, breakofdaycapital.com. And you could sign up for our newsletter. You can fill out an investor application. You can set up a call with me. Uh, we have social media links so you can follow us and learn more about us. And uh, yeah, that's that's the best way. Got it. And what's the name of your podcast? Uh, The Real Estate Asset Management Podcast.
0: Got it, okey-doke. Gary Lipsky, uh, you're a man that will continue to do amazing things, I'm positive of that. Well, I appreciate you having
1: me on and uh, had a great time talking with you,
0: Roger. All right, talk to you soon, bye-bye.